Hallelujah. Hi, you're a pretty bad frog if you won't croak for your own pond. Can you say amen to that? I, I was called, uh, we want you to be praying for Ricky Cochran. Um, he's uh, down in his back, something severe. And uh, I tell you, there's nothing worse than back pain. He was scheduled to be on the schedule tonight. And Brother Randy's on vacation. And he had found out about it. And he had texted me, hey, buddy, I'm in a dilemma. Can you take care of this? I said, sure. So that's why I'm here tonight. We do try to use as many people as we can. And as the Lord would lead Randy, he's the one over Wednesday nights. But if you have your Bibles, just, you know, I'd like to read the whole chapter. But because of time, I'm not going to do that. But turn to 2 Samuel Chapter 21, I'm going to read verse 10. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. And I hope they can get that up on there. I tried to call them earlier. But uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. And, uh, and I'd like to read the whole chapter because I'm going to just give you an overview of that chapter. And I, 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 uh, I want you to know that it, this story, you need to really go home and read it because there's hours and hours of preaching and teaching and symbolics throughout that chapter. It's one of the most richest chapters, I think, in the whole book of 2 Samuel. Uh, it's a story that's been tucked away. We don't preach on it much. A lot of people don't understand it, and they just kind of go through it. And just They look at it as an overview, and they just kind of go through it, and they don't really pay attention to the symbolics that is actually in this chapter. And to teach it all, we'd be here a long time. And one of the things I think that maybe where we're making one mistake is that a lot of times we say we're going to do a devotion, and devotion's about 10 to 15 minutes, and we end up sometimes 15 minutes later, I'll close. That's the preacher and me and Randy especially. I do not want to do that to you tonight. And so I cannot, there's a lot that I want to speak on but because of time, I want to give us time to pray. Now, there's no good at having a prayer meeting if we don't pray. Come on, now, seriously. I remember the reason why we started this. I was in prayer about Wednesday nights because we were preaching, and our attendance was running between 90 to 150 on Wednesday nights. And I said, Lord, what is it that we need to do to spur Wednesday nights on? I'm talking about in the sanctuary not counting the children's ministry and different things. We run around 300 on Wednesday night. But I was sitting there thinking, what do we need to do? And the Lord spoke to me and he said, when, is, when are you going to start allowing the people to put to practice what they know? They've been preached to and preached to and preached to and taught and taught. And when are you going to allow them to put into action what they know? And so we called a prayer meeting. And ever since then, the Lord's not allowed us to stop it. It is very vitally important that you and I pray. Prayer changes things. So we're going to talk a little bit about prayer again tonight. Uh, if you'll look in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 21, verse 10, it says, And Rispa, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock. From the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beast of the field by night. Now, I want to talk to you about that passage of Scripture just for a moment. I'm going to ask Jim Todd, would you pray please over me tonight? I've got a, a raspy throat, and I got a, my voice is trying to go out on me. Would you pray, please?
Amen. Our story is a very unusual passage of story. It deals with a woman by the name of Rispeth. You only hear about her in this chapter, in this chapter only, and she's only mentioned in about three verses of Scripture. And this woman is a remarkable woman. What she does is amazing to me. And the stamina, the persistence, the consistency of this lady is unbelievable. And as I begin to look at this story called, what I've called Rispeth, is that what is so fascinating is Rispeth had two sons. One of them was by the name of Mephibosheth, which was not the son of Saul, who David showed kindness to. It's a different Mephibosheth. And another one by the name of Ammion. And it was, both of them had been killed. We're going to be talking about their deaths and the reason for their deaths and what she did. First of all, we find out that David is king. David is over the king and the, he's at the coming to the end or the close of his reign. The nation had prospered. The nation had been just, uh, just growing and things were happening and God's blessing was upon the nation. And um, David's reign was one of the, considered one of the greatest reigns that there was of all of the kings. And everything's coming to a close in David's life here shortly. It's, it's at the end of the reign. And all of a sudden... David, they experience a famine one year, and David didn't think nothing of it. It's just nature taking its place. There's no rain, and because there's no rain, we've had a little bit of problem with the crops, and we've had problem with the cattle, and the problem with the beast, and the different things that they raise, the different animals. Well, then all of a sudden, he finds himself in a dilemma that famine lasts another year, and then all of a sudden, it lasts another year. So he's in the third year of famine, and David begins to think, what in the world's going wrong here? And David begins to understand a principle that you and I need to understand as a church. When things begin to dry up, you need to take notice why. When things begin to no longer uh, begin to be prospered and the favor of God seems to be disappeared, and when things, the rain has stayed and the blessings have stayed, now symbolically, let's say this, when the showers quit falling, when the blessings quit falling, when the movement doesn't no longer take place, when things begin to dry up in the church, it's time for the church to say, what's wrong? Can I have an amen there? I don't think that's taking the scripture out of context whatsoever. Three years of famine and David says, all right, this is not natural. It may be natural to go through a famine period, Maybe a natural to go through a trial, but for three years, the hand of God has been stayed upon us and we've been prospering all of these years. We need to find out what has stopped the rains from falling and the dew from falling. We gotta find out what's going on. So David says, I will inquire of the Lord. I love that passage of scripture. You can read it when you get home. David then goes into prayer. And one of the things that you and I got to do in the times of dryness, in the times of leanness, in the times when nothing's happening, when the times when it just seems like that heaven has stayed, we need to go into prayer. Amen. Amen? We don't need to sit around and gripe about it and wonder about it and try to make things happen, try to make things happen in our own strength, try to manipulate something to take place. We need to go into prayer. We gotta get to a place where we gotta understand that when there's leanness like that for long periods of time, we gotta find out what's wrong. Now, I'm not saying that you gotta feel the presence of God every day of your life. I know it's a life of faith. But folks, when you go for year after year after year and have no movement in your life, there's something wrong, there's something hindering, and you better take notice. 
whether it be upon a congregation, whether it be on an individual life, whether it be in a home, whether it be upon your family, whatever, where there is lack of favor and lack of blessing, there's reasons why. And so David begins to inquire of the Lord. He said, God, what's taking place? Is there something wrong? And God says, yes. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not using the King James Version, but this is the story. And David says, well, what is it that is wrong? And he said, because of Saul and his bloody hands towards the Gibeonites. Now, here's David saying, what in the world, I'm sure, are you talking about? David said, David's saying, I've been reign all these years, and you're going back and saying that what I am faced with today is a result of something that Saul done? Here is David almost 40 years later suffering a result of something that Saul done 40 years earlier. Now, think about that. And I begin to think about that, and before I go on, and I get ahead of myself a little bit because I don't even know where to go with this. There's so much to talk about. What is it that we're suffering today that has nothing to do with what we've done, but it has to do with what our ancestors done? What is our nation going through right now as a result of something that our forefathers done that you and I had no control over whatsoever? Some of the things that you and I face in life sometimes is not a judgment that you, uh, for something that you and I have done, but it's a judgment for something that our forefathers has done. There's sometimes that you and I face what we call generational curses. Can I have an amen? Sometimes you and I will go through things that is involved with the sin of our forefathers and not only our sin. And the only hope for a turnaround is if we, this generation, sometimes repents of what our future generation did. Are you ready to hear that? You and I have a responsibility to correct the wrongs that our forefathers did. If we don't, we will not find the favor upon the land. How many knows if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Why should David and the people of his day be the ones that would have to face a famine that was caused by someone else and it had nothing to do with their own making? I think there's two reasons of why of that. Number one, we sometimes have to suffer the decisions that people made long ago. It's inherited sins. It's generational curses. But number two, I think this shows the grace of God. Because I want to tell you, God allowed this judgment to fall in a time where there was a king that reigned that had a heart of God that would deal with it and make it right. God prolonged his judgment by grace and mercy until a king that would come by that would deal with it. If it would have fell in the time of Saul, Israel would have lived in judgment for over 40 solid years because Saul was stiff-necked and rebellious and stubborn and he would have never come to the point of recognizing his sin and repenting before God so the whole nation would have been under severe judgment for 40 years and it would not have survived. But God's grace knows when to bring about the coming pending judgment and warning of that judgment upon the generation 
that has enough courage and faith and, and understanding to where they will rise up and repent so that judgment can be spared. Hallelujah. So what we're seeing right now in America with everything that has taken place, America has lost her favor, but there is a generation that God has entrusted that with in order that he can say, I'm revealing it in a time to a generation that won't ignore what has taken place, but they'll make the wrong right through their intercessory prayer and their repentance. God has entrusted for a people such as you and I for this very hour. Can I have an amen? Now, folks, there's a lot of preaching right there. Do you not understand what I just said? That God has entrusted such a time for you and I. What he trusted with David, he has trusted with you and I this day. That you and I need to get on our faces and really repent over our nation of the sins that they have committed and ask God to have mercy and spare grace upon America. And when the church begins to travail and to pray and seek the face of God in repentance, God will revert judgment from the land. Can I have an amen? Give the Lord, matter of fact, stand to your feet and give God praise. Hallelujah. Give him praise. Worship him for a moment. Hallelujah. So David says, okay, we got a problem on our hands. The Gibeonites have been mistreated by Saul. How did that happen? Well, you got to go back all the way to the time of Joshua. Joshua made a covenant with the Gibeonites. He'd done it because he was deceived. They'd done it out of trickery and they were full of deception and they caused Joshua to make a covenant out of deception that he should have never made. Hello? But nevertheless, he made the covenant. So was that the greatest great sin that's bringing judgment? No. There are times that God gives you rooms for mistake but there's times when God, there, but there's never a time that God will wink with covenant breakers. Can I have an amen? There's a difference. Is it all right? I just get down here and give you. There's a time that you and I can stumble and make a mistake like Joshua, be deceived, and even Paul was a guy that was, you know, he said, Satan has buffeted me, got the better end of me, I, you know, he, he seemed to get the upper edge of me. That's the Apostle Paul. If that's going to happen to Paul, it's going to happen to you and I. It happened to Joshua, the great leader, that God ordained a place there in the place of Moses. Come on. God chose him. God ordained him, and yet he was a man that was not flawless. He made a mistake. He made the covenant, but nevertheless, there was one thing about Joshua. He's a man of integrity. He kept the covenant even though it caused him grave suffering, he kept the covenant. And the covenant was, we'll be with you, we'll work with you, we'll protect you, we'll be your bodyguard, and when one picks on you, it's the same as picking on us. That was more or less the covenant. And Joshua says, 
will honor that covenant. And Joshua did honor that covenant until the day he died. Years and years later, Saul comes on the scene and all of a sudden there's a group of old men that remember what took place way back there and they're upset and they're vengeant in their heart and they put pressure on old Saul. And they tell Saul, you need to deal with the Gibeonites. And out of peer pressure, Saul makes a wrong decision. But out of peer pressure, Saul goes out and goes to war with them and slays them and kills a bunch of them, tried to stomp them out according to the word of the Lord. God did not allow it to happen, but nevertheless, he shed blood of the Gibeonites. Now, 40 years later, the nation has fallen under judgment because of what Saul did. What was the difference between what Saul did and what Joshua did? Saul was saying to his mind, and by peer pressure, well, you know, he should have never done that. I want to tell you, two wrongs never make a right. And when you make a covenant, whether it be a wrong covenant or a right covenant, you've got to honor that covenant. To break the covenant is worse, come on, than saying I made a mistake that I made a covenant. How do I know that? Ecclesiastes chapter five says don't make a covenant, don't make a promise and say it was a mistake and break it lest the angel of the Lord destroy the works of your hands. You marry somebody and they're the wrong person to marry, don't say, well, it was a mistake. You made a covenant. And the only way out of that covenant is by death. The only way out of that covenant is by what? Somebody having infidelity. Now that ain't going, that's going over like a lead balloon, isn't it? Because if you break the covenant, God judges covenant breakers. He expected Israel to keep that covenant from that time on. Why? Because God also made a covenant with Israel way back with Abraham and all that point from Abraham all the way to David, God's never broke the covenant because it's an everlasting covenant. Because God is not a covenant breaker. He's not a liar. Nothing would cause God to turn away from breaking his own covenant with us. Well, guess what? We got a covenant through Jesus Christ. And God will not break that covenant he has made with us. Oh, that's preaching right there. Oh, I, that, I'm going on a different rabbit there. I didn't even think about going that way. So now we got a problem. Saul's broke covenant. As a result of the covenant, he shed blood. He's killed the people. Now judgment has come upon Israel. David's prayed. David's found out the problem. So he goes to the Gibeonites. What do I got to do in order that you will be satisfied? What can I offer you to bring recompense of this thing that we have done? And the Gibeonites says, well, we don't want one man of Israel to die. We don't want your silver. We don't want your gold. We don't want your women. We don't want to ravish you. But I'll tell you what you can do. This, this, this will satisfy us. We want seven sons, seven descendants of Saul, seven sons, seven descendants of Saul to be brought to us that we may hang them. David says, Okay, that's what we're gonna do. Okay, guys, the palace of praise is broken covenant. I need seven volunteers, please. Now, that's what it would be like. But David is so obedient in this that he, 
And he loves his people so much because David was that prince servant king. And he's sitting here thinking, seven descendants of Saul, male descendants of Saul, has got to die. He goes to Micah, the daughter of Saul, finds five of her sons. Come with me. He goes to Rispeth and finds two of her sons and says, come with me. And he takes them and he takes them over to the camp of the Gibeonites. They took them out on the hillside. They made some nooses, threw it over a limb or whatever, and there they hung all seven of them until they died. That's what the Bible says. And here they are hanging on the tree and the scripture tells us that for some reason, we don't know why, we don't know if that was the command of the Gibeonites or whether it was just David going to make them as public examples, we don't know why. But there was an order for them not to be taken down off of the tree or off of the noose, that they were to hang there until they rotted and decayed. That, my friend, was one of the things that went against the traditions of Israel because Israel believed that anybody that hung on the tree was cursed, number one, but anybody that hanged after night, overnight, was, it was a symbol that that would be a curse that would pass on. So now we got a problem. Seven sons or descendants of Saul is being hung for a crime that their ancestors done. Don't tell me that the sins of people don't affect future generations. It does. Everything you do wrong is going to affect your grandson, your great-grandson, your great-great-grandson, and your great-great-great-great. Our sins are passed down to the fourth generation. Amen? Man, y'all are quiet tonight. So David hangs them, they're out there, and Micah is not heard of. Five of her sons is out there. We don't hear her showing up at the graveside. I'm sure she did, but there's nothing recorded of her doing anything. But there's this little woman by the name of Rispeth, and she comes, and she gets sackcloth, and I can prove it by Scripture. How many knows what sackcloth represents? Two things it represents. South cloth represents repentance. Humility, repentance, humbleness before God. It also represents intercession. When priests would go in, not only to repent of their sin, they would use, at that point, south cloth, but when they would go to intercede for a nation, they would use south cloth and ashes. And it was a form of intercessory where that priest was standing in the gap for that nation or the people in whom he was praying for. Rispeth is sitting here, a mother in sackcloth, and she puts it upon a rock. Now, folks, how many knows what the rock stands for? Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the rock that they drawed water out of in the wilderness. Jesus is the rock that the wise man built his house upon. Can I have an amen? Jesus is the firm foundation, the chief cornerstone, amen? 
So this is a symbol of Rispeth putting down sackcloth upon the faith in the rock of Christ Jesus who's the intercessor and high priest and our advocate to plead our case. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? How many knows you have a high priest that you can come and make your petitions known and he'll pray for you? How many knows that Jesus is set at the right hand of the Father to make intercessory for the saints? How many believes that God's able to save to the uttermost of them that come to him seeing that he ever liveth to make intercessory? God can save America. How? By a church getting in sackcloth and ashes, being humble and repentant and intercessory upon the basis of the rock Christ Jesus. Our advocate will plead our place and judgment shall be lifted. That's hope for America. Everybody says, oh, it's going down the tubes and the church can't do one thing about it. We can do everything about it. We have more power in prayer than any other, any other thing. You can try to shoot your way out of it, argue your way out of it, debate your way out of it, preach your way out of it, fight your way out of it. You're wasting your time. But when you kneel your knee in prayer upon the rock and Seth cloth and in ashes, it moves the hand of God and God then fights your battles and you don't fight them yourself. He fights them for you. That's how powerful prayer is. That's how powerful intercessory is. She lays it out on the rock. I got tickled at my uh, pastor's wife years ago. They had a bunch of bills coming in. They were pastoring. They were full time. And uh, the church went through a slump. And he just wouldn't take his salary so that the church could survive. Nobody knew it. And she said, God, we got all these bills to pay. And Wilkie's decided not to take a salary this week. How do you expect me to pay them? And she took them. She just spread them out upon the table. And she said, okay, Lord, here is the electric bill. And she held it up. She said, this is from so-and-so electric company. It's for this amount of money. And God, you know what? I lay it right here upon the provision of Jesus. And I show it to you. And she, she went through every single bill. And she literally presented it to the Lord that week. At the end of that week, around noon or 1 o'clock when the mail rung, she had to pay her bills that day. She said, well, we ain't got nothing all week. She went to the mailbox and opened it up and there was a check for the exact amount of money to pay every single one of those bills. Her intercessory provided the need for her dilemma. The need for our country is for people to get serious about intercessory. We gotta get serious. Things ain't gonna change by hopeful thinking or wishful thinking, it ain't just going to fall out of the sky. In order to, order to get any kind of a jewel, you got to mine for it. Amen? It's hard work. Intercessory's hard. Rispeth goes out there, puts her sackcloth upon that rock, and she sets down, and she begins, that's a sign of intercessory, she watches over her two boys who is dead, and she refuses to say, I am not going to have a seed that will not have a proper burial because if they don't have a proper burial, every one of their seed will be cursed from this day forward. And until them boys are put away properly, I am not leaving this spot. 
For me to leave this spot and leave them hang, that means that their seed is thrown to the wind, their inheritance, their, their children will not receive an inheritance, they'll receive the curse of judgment that's upon them will be going to generation after generation. That tells me that if the church wants to walk away and ignore their responsibility in intercessory over their nation right now, that it's not only going to bring judgment upon us who live in this generation, but our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren will also suffer that same judgment as a result of our neglect. Isn't that right? So Rispeth, she gets out there and sits on that thing, and it says, and the birds of the air would come and try to pick away of the flesh of her sons. And she'd take the sackcloth and go out there and wave it and wave it, and wave it. And the birds would go away. She'd protect as much as she could the rotting flesh of those boys as they hung there on, on that tree, on that noose. At night, said the beast of the field would come to try to devour the boys. The hogs, the bears, the wolves, the dogs, and every other animal that would eat flesh, rotting flesh, they would come in the middle of the night to do it and she would build fires and she'd get that blanket and she'd holler and she'd sit there by the fire to protect herself and when something would come by, she'd chunk a fire, fire at it and she'd run the beast of the field away from her boy's body. Isn't that something? When you and I intercede, it protects our children from the buzzards of the enemy, the prince and the power of the air. And it protects our children from the wild beasts, the demonic domain of hell that's against them. This is what she was doing through intercessory, symbol through intercessory. She was saying, I stand upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ interceding over my two dead boys' body, but I'll tell you, the buzzards are not going to eat them and the hogs are not going to eat them. I want to tell you, I'm protecting my boys from the onslaught of evil. And she protected them kids. Think about that. Day after day, Day after day, this went on. How many thinks they know how long she done it? Raise your hand if you think you know how long. Anybody have any clue of how long she done it? How many thinks 30 days? That'd be a long time, wouldn't it? How many thinks 10 days? 120 days? You know how long Rispeth done that? Six months. And here we come sometimes in our little prayer modes and we'll pray 10 minutes and think, well, I've done my part. We'll pray on Wednesday, but when it comes to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and Monday and Tuesday, we don't do much. But Wednesday's prayer time, this woman was consistent. This woman was persistent. Intercessory has to be consistent. It can't be a random thing that we do. You know why? You'll get out of the rhythm of intercessory if you don't stay praying. There's an art to prayer. There's a rhythm of prayer. There's an atmosphere of prayer. 
And I want to tell you, Kent Miller's greatest prayer is not when he prays every other day or so or whenever he gets the chance. It's when I discipline myself and say, at this time, I'm going to have a time of prayer and intercessory before God. And when I go in there, I get into that rhythm of prayer and it carries over to the next day and the next day. And before long, it just builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. That's what Rispeth did. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of thoughts here and I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to... Uh, <laughs> to say anything about them because we're going to get carried away here and we're going to... Oh, my. <laughs> very thing I said I wasn't going to do, that's what I'm doing, so i got to quit. I'm just going to... All right. I'll tell you what happened. I'll, just, I'll, I'll skip all that good stuff. Man, that's hard to do. Ugh, it goes against my grain. So to make a long story short, David hears about Rispeth. The king hears Rispeth. I love that. How many thinks the king hears you? Oh. David says, we got a woman, we got to honor. Something phenomenal happens. Huh. When I thought of this, I thought, God, thank you. Because no doubt about it, I am saved and I'm unworthy to be saved and no one earned it for me. You're just a God of grace. And Rispeth intercedes for those two boys and man, she does everything she can to protect the bones of them boys and the flesh of those boys and for six months with the smell and the stench and she watches them decay and she watches them rot. She sees chunks of flesh falling off. She sees her kids being brought to complete uh, decaying through the decaying process to nothing but a bones and skin and leather bleached by the sun hanging on, hanging in that noose. And the smell and the aroma is just unbelievable. And here she is looking at that and King David shows up and says, what's going on? And Rispeth tells her, tells him. David, the first thing that he does, he doesn't do anything with them as of yet. He goes to the graves of King Saul and he goes to the grave of Jonathan, King Saul's son, the beloved. He digs them up. There's nothing but bones there. <laughs> this is so moving to me. They get the bones of King Saul. They get the bones of beloved Jonathan who was David's best friend who come as one with David, spared David's life. And they bring them to where them boys are at. David takes the two sons of Rispeth off of that tree and he places them in the cart with the wrong with King Saul's bones. The very man that caused this to happen is now the very God through repentance and sackcloth and intercessory is breaking reconciliation between the two. The very man that caused it, he's brought his bones before him. Now he's taking their bones and putting them together a sign of reconciliation, a sign of restitution, a sign of forgiveness. That's what intercessory will do. Right there, it'll do the impossible. It'll mend broken relationships. It'll bring marriages together. It'll bring families together. It'll cause forgiveness to take place when there's such deep wounds and deep disagreements. 
And they brought them together, but watch this. I love it. He don't get in that cart and drive off and go bury them together, but he takes the five sons of Micah too. When a mother didn't intercede at all, there was a stranger on the side that was interceding and it touched the heart of God and God gave grace to where grace should not have been given over one woman. And he went out and buried them. And it was there, you see the picture. Guess what happened immediately when that followed? Rispa's still sending there. She's waiting. She still won't leave. Why not? David's going to make the right wrong. David's got the bodies off of the tree. He's going to go give them a decent burial, but after the burial, she returns back to the rock. Why? Because the rain had not fallen yet. And all of a sudden, when she gets to the rock, the rain begins to fall. Favor came back to the nation. Famine was over. Would you stand?